If you remember your high school physics, you'll remember Isaac Newton and his laws of motion. Several of those laws talk about something called momentum. For Newton, momentum was a product of mass and velocity. Essentially, you multiply how much a thing weighs by how fast it's moving. In ideal circumstances with no headwinds or gravity to fight against, momentum is a constant, it doesn't change. But we almost never live in ideal circumstances. In most cases, if you want to preserve momentum, you need to apply force and to maintain that force. I'm Ken Schulman. Welcome to the second season of Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. Last season, we visited some of the hottest topics in cancer research. We featured some of Dana-Farber's most compelling scientists, physicians, and patients. This season, our theme is momentum. The momentum that takes therapies from test bench to bedside and then back to test bench for fine-tuning. The momentum provided by researchers who defy headwinds and even gravity to keep science moving forward. The momentum that doctors harness with medicines and care that can transform once lethal cancers into treatable conditions. In the spirit of momentum, to keep the ball rolling, we'll pick up this first story in the present. Meet Brian Kimball. He's a retired physician assistant living in New Hampshire. In 2014, following a routine checkup and blood test, Kimball was diagnosed with CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It's a blood cancer, a mutation in the B cells, the cells that produce antibodies. CLL is a slow-growing cancer. Most people, including Kimball, experience few symptoms at the outset. But over time, these mutant B cells can muscle out their healthy counterparts in the bone marrow. With sufficient numbers, they can stem the production of red blood cells. They can damage organs. More than 4,000 people die each year from CLL. And Brian Kimball, he had a pretty good run, but in 2020, six years after his initial diagnosis... I began to feel fatigue uh, when I was just doing routine things, uh, walking my dog on trails. I just didn't have the endurance that I would typically have. And so I had some lab work done, and lo and behold, my numbers had really changed dramatically. The numbers Brian Kimball mentions are the numbers of lymphocytes, platelets, and red blood cells in his bloodstream. They showed the cancer had progressed a lot. But I'll spare you the suspense. Brian's doing fine. He had a year of treatment at Dana-Farber, and he's back hiking in the woods with Barley, his golden retriever. He gardens in the spring, bikes and kayaks in the summer, and cross-country skis in winter. So all these things don't feel difficult. I feel um, as good as I've ever felt. So how did Brian Kimball get his groove back? That's the real story, a story that starts decades ago at Dana-Farber with a man named Stanley Korsmeyer. Korsmeyer led the molecular oncology program at Dana-Farber from 1998 until his death in 2005. He studied something called apoptosis. That's a term coined from the ancient Greek. It literally means falling off or falling away. But in biology, it's trade talk for programmed cell death. In the years before Korsmeyer came to Dana-Farber, he discovered that B-cell cancers like CLL overproduced a protein called BCL2. 
BCL is short for B-cell lymphoma. Korsmeyer saw that this BCL2 protein, the one that cancer shifted into overdrive, interfered with apoptosis, with programmed cell death. Essentially, the BCL2 protein kept the cancer cells from dying when they were supposed to. It's one of the many things cancer does to survive and prosper. In hindsight, the discovery that BCL2 saved cells from self-destruction proved to be a game-changer. But at the time, it was just an interesting discovery, one of many. At least that's what it sounded like to Tony Latai. I remember back when I was a graduate student getting my PhD at University of Chicago a long time ago, I actually had the opportunity to see Stan speak. And being sort of callow and ignorant, I listened to him speak. I was like, program cell death. I mean, who cares? Cells live, they, cells die. It doesn't, you know, it's just like, it's not that interesting to me. And I just totally forgot about it. Tony Latai came to Dana-Farber as a fellow in 1998, the same year Stan Korsmeyer arrived there. Three years later, Latai signed on to work in Korsmeyer's lab. Stan was also a wonderful human being. And honestly, I chose his lab originally more because I thought he was a great guy, even before I really was mature enough to understand the quality of what was going on in his lab. Korsmeyer's character might have drawn Latai to the lab, but it was the work that kept him there the work and some very good timing. It was just at the point when I entered his lab, that was about the year 2000, people started to think about, well, if BCL2 is keeping cells alive and maybe preferentially keeping cancer cells alive, maybe if we get rid of it or antagonize it or inhibit it in some way, maybe we can kill cancer cells selectively. So that's when it really, the, the mood changed to one of actually targeting it rather than just learning about it. The mood may have changed from inquiry to intervention, but it wasn't just on a whim. There was momentum, and Latai working in Korsmeyer's lab helped get it rolling. I was like making this tumor in this mouse. I, I knew I could switch it on and off. I inserted a switch in it. And I made the point of showing that if I switched off BCL2, the leukemia would go away, just to show the field that like, this is fine, it's okay. There was this like bump in the road but it's a totally legitimate effort. If you shut off BCL2, you can get cancers to go away, so we should keep doing this. Our cells have myriad mechanisms for growth, repair, and when the time comes, for self-destruction. Cells turn off or fall off when they've completed their mission, when they wear down, or when they suffer genetic mutations that can't be fixed, mutations that then make them a threat. The way that works is there's things inside, every cell in our body also has within it something called mitochondria. You may remember hearing about these in biology class a long time ago, and we often think of them as like the power plant of the cell, and that's true. They're really necessary for making energy and other things. But for the purposes of apoptosis, why they're so significant is they're sort of a bag of poison. When a cell reaches the end of its useful life, a group of proteins gang up and poke a hole in the mitochondria, releasing the toxic booby trap that destroys the cell. Now, I realize that might sound a little dicey. Fortunately, we've got a countdown, a multi-step process for how these proteins are deployed, a process that makes sure our cells really mean it when they say nevermore. One of the important things that comes out is a protein called cytochrome C. It has a day job of helping make energy for the cell. But the job in this case is it interacts with a bunch of proteins that have just been sitting around doing nothing, 
one called APAF1, another one called caspase 9, and it forms something that we call the apoptosome. The apoptosome is a protein complex that activates another set of proteins called proteases. The handoffs continue as these proteases activate yet another set of proteins, enzymes this time, that hack the cell's DNA to pieces so it can never replicate. And just in case this method fails, these same enzymes activate something called eat me signals. And then there's cells in our body that are what we call professional phagocytes. These phagocytes come along, they recognize these eat me signals, and what do they do? They literally eat up the cell. They surround it, engulf it, and then digest it. And that is the end. It's an exquisitely designed system and exquisitely effective, except when it isn't. Sometimes, with CLL and other cancers, the final countdown gets postponed. How? As Korsmeyer and other researchers dug deeper into the process, they saw that BCL2, the protein that seemed to block cell death, doesn't work alone. There's a whole scrum of proteins that determine a cell's fate. And he was the first person to figure out that there's not just BCL2, but a whole family, some of which are pro-apoptotic, some of which are anti-apoptotic, keeping the cell alive, like BCL2. And exactly how they interact and what controls them was really the subject of a lot of Stan's research, and I think most would acknowledge him, you know, a, a real worldwide leader in that. So it's not a lone wolf operation. It's a strategic standoff, a chess match between two teams, the team trying to end the cell and the team trying to keep it alive. Any significant shift in numbers on either side tips the balance, and CLL has figured out a way to game the system. How does it do that? It drives tumor cells to produce high quantities of BCL2. And these proteins, these excess BCL2 proteins, snag the pro-death proteins that would otherwise have ended this cell. It's like a game of capture the flag. The pro-death proteins are neutralized, imprisoned, unable to complete their mission, and their cancer cells live on. The CLL thrives. How can you defeat an enemy that just gobbles up your best troops? Well, the stakes are really high now in the cell because it has a lot of pro-apoptotic proteins that are all bound up by these anti-apoptotic proteins. So it's a state that we call primed for death. These are cells where you just got to tickle the anti-apoptotic proteins a little bit and get them to release the pro-apoptotic proteins. Then they go puncture the mitochondria and let the poison out. Well then, all that was needed was a feather, something to tickle the BCL2 proteins to get them to let the dogs out. I don't know that I, I knew enough to be skeptical at the time. It was also new and exciting to me, and I saw potential for clinical targeting, so maybe I was just naive. But I, I thought it seemed very feasible if you had the right drug and the right target, you could hit it hard and, and that you could have an effective therapy. That's Matthew Davids. He directs clinical research at Dana-Farber's Lymphoma Division. He's also Brian Kimball's doctor. You remember, the CLL patient with the Golden Retriever in New Hampshire? Davids came to Dana-Farber as a first-year fellow in 2008. He fell in love with the study of apoptosis, and soon he signed on with Tony Latai's lab. Latai had picked up the momentum that Korsmeyer started. He was moving the research forward. Still, at the time, few in the field believed it was possible to hit the BCL2 target, to find a drug that could inhibit the pathway CLL used to evade cell death. 
It was a time where actually there was very little fanfare in the field because there had been a lot of failures over the years. You know, there was incredible science, but there was a skepticism that we could ever target that pathway therapeutically because of some of the prior drugs that had tried and failed. There was skepticism, but there had also been a lot of progress. And there's been progress since then. Scientists know a lot more about how CLL keeps tumor cells alive. Stan Korsmeyer discovered that BCL2 captured pro-death proteins. And he also discovered that there was a whole family of BCL2 proteins. Some of these BCL2 proteins were pro-survival. Some were pro-death. The pro-death proteins have names like BIM and BAC and BAD. And they share one feature that proved to be important, the BH3 domain. The domain. It's a structural unit on proteins. It's made of amino acids. In this case, the BH3 domain works like a sort of docking station. Now, lots of proteins have domains, and many have several. But BIM and BAC and BAD and their pro-death posse have only one, the BH3 domain. And that BH3 domain is what gets them in trouble, gets them caught, because the pro-survival BCL2 proteins also have a BH3 domain. And they use that domain to snag the pro-death proteins. Like attracts like. CLL, the cancer, takes advantage of that shared attraction. It drives tumor cells to produce excess BCL2 proteins. And these BCL2 proteins capture the pro-death posse at the BH3 domain. So you have the shock troops, the pro-death proteins, ready to puncture the mitochondria and release the poison. But they're in the clutches of the BCL2 proteins. What you need now, in Latai's words, is the feather to tickle those BCL2 proteins and free the troops. So how would you do that? Imagine for a moment that you want to play pickleball. But you look across the room and see your dog has your racket in its mouth. You offer him a ball, a chew toy, a treat. Nothing works. He wants the racket. But it turns out it's not the whole racket he wants. It's the handle with the leather grip. So you go downstairs and find the racket you broke last week. It's just a handle now, but it does have the same leather grip. You offer that racket fragment, the handle, to the dog. He wags his tail, drops your racket, and sinks his teeth into the surrogate. That's sort of what Latai and Davids and others did. They used another racket handle, a synthetic handle, fragments of the proteins that would get the BCL2 protein to open its jaws, clamp down on the counterfeit, and free up BIM and BAD and company to do their pro-death thing, to kill the cancer cells. These small fragments are called BH3 mimetics because the fragments look and feel like the BH3 domain. Not the racket, just the handle, the part that got caught in the BCL2 trap. It was literally a bait and switch. According to Matthew Davids, it wasn't just a way to defeat CLL. It was a new way to fight cancer. It's actually a very different mechanism of action compared to most drugs in oncology. Most cancer drugs are small molecules that bind with the receptor on the surface of a tumor cell, or they bind to a pocket within the protein. The BH3 mimetics, the synthetic racket handle, work differently. 
It's more of a mechanical phenomenon that targets the, the protein and displaces that pro-apoptotic molecule. So it's, a whole, it's really actually a whole new paradigm of cancer treatment. In 2011, the year Matthew Davids joined the Dana-Farber faculty, he led a clinical trial for a promising BH3 mimetic. The drug, known at the time as ABT199, had performed remarkably well in a CLL clinical trial in Australia. Davids treated some of the first patients in the U.S. with the drug that would later be named venetoclax. The results were, well, staggering. It was amazing. I mean, these were patients who had run out of all treatment options. You know, they were probably going to go to hospice. And sort of as a last resort, they came on this clinical trial and upwards of 80% responded, in some cases, very durably. I have just a handful of patients, but I have some patients still from that era who are still on venetoclax now, eight, nine years later in some cases. It's just incredible to see how durable the responses can be. Davids presented his results in 2012. Four years later, in 2016, the FDA approved venetoclax for patients with CLL. It was the first BH3 mimetic to be approved for treatment in cancer, and much of the science that led to the drug was done at Dana-Farber. That was one reason Brian Kimball decided to make the trip from New Hampshire down to Boston. I mean, when I was first diagnosed, I started following all the, the big names in CLL research and Dr. Davids was among them, and I was elated to discover that he was right in Boston and that I was able to get an appointment with him. I remember going in with a long list of questions that he very patiently went through and answered every single one of them, and uh, I promised myself I wouldn't do that to him the next time. So, Kimball kept that promise, but in 2020, when it was clear Kimball needed treatment, Davids had a question for him. What treatment did he prefer? There were two options. The first was something called the BTK inhibitor. It binds to the BTK protein on the malignant cell, shuts the cell down, and eventually kills it. The second option was a two-drug combination. The first drug was venetoclax, the BH3 mimetic, that frees up the pro-death proteins. The second drug was obinutuzumab. That's a monoclonal antibody that binds with the protein on the surface of the tumor cell. Both options were viable, but the first treatment with BTK inhibitors could go on indefinitely. The second treatment, the two-drug combo, would only last 12 months. Kimball also thought the list of potential side effects for option two looked a little less daunting. Now, the two-drug combo was relatively new, but Davids and his team had more than a decade of experience with venetoclax. What I knew at the time was that that combination of therapy, it had only been approved about 15 months prior to my needing it. And so I felt fortunate to be in a setting where they had a lot of experience already at that point in using that combination and that they were getting the outcomes that the trials had shown that they would. Kimball started the two-drug combo treatment in the fall of 2020. At first, he came to Boston every week as Davids gradually upped the dosage of venetoclax. Then he came down once a month, and then once every three months. At six months, just halfway through the treatment, he'd already reached the MRD threshold, the minimal residual disease level where cancer cells can't be detected, even by highly sensitive molecular tests. By November 2021, the treatment was done. I have to say, it was not a difficult year. The hardest part was just getting from New Hampshire to Boston and being where I needed to be 
at the appointed time. Truly, that, that was all. I, it was not, not a hard regimen to follow. In a perfect system, once again, according to Isaac Newton, momentum is preserved. There's no resistance, no forces to bring a moving object to a halt. In that perfect world, Brian Kimball's story has the happiest of endings. Now, his story is pretty darn happy in this world, too, but the story's not over. Almost every therapy can be improved, made more precise, less toxic. The dosage can be altered. It can be administered as a frontline therapy or in cases of relapse or following a stem cell transplant. It can be combined with other drugs and applied to other cancers. And then there's that other kind of resistance, the things that tumor cells teach themselves in order to hack through our best laid treatment plans. In short, cancer doesn't rest, so neither can science or doctors. So my job is to understand the science, translate it into a question that really could be answered in the context of a clinical trial. That's Jacqueline Garcia. She's a physician at Dana-Farber, and she designs and directs early translational clinical trials. Part of that job is asking patients if they want to participate, to try out a therapy that, however promising, is still in development. I take them through a diagnosis, I take some through a relapse, and I take some through end of life. And it really helped me to appreciate, one, was this worth the patient's time? Did I take something away? Did I add? Did I ask a good question? And so I think that I find that I often put a lot of responsibility in myself in a good way to make sure that whenever I'm designing a clinical trial, which is truly a human experiment, that I'm making sure I move the field forward and I move the experience forward for the patient to give them a chance that they might not have had before. Garcia specializes in acute myeloid leukemia. AML is a common form of adult leukemia. It causes bone marrow to produce immature cells called blast cells. These blast cells crowd out red blood cells and can lead to bone marrow failure. As the word acute implies, things can go south very quickly with AML if it's not treated. In her clinical trials, Garcia was able to confirm that AML, just like CLL, was highly dependent on BCL2. It was the same mechanism the BCL2 proteins captured all the pro-death proteins and kept the cancer cells alive. Garcia's work with AML patients led the FDA to approve a combination venetoclax therapy for the disease in 2020. Momentum. Research and researchers keep pushing a therapy towards new frontiers, but there's also push back. AML does depend on BCL2 to keep its tumor cells alive, just like CLL, the disease Brian Kimball was treated for. But unlike CLL, which is more homogenous, AML presents differently in different patients. One of the things that remains difficult in acute myeloid leukemia is that it's a heterogeneous disease. So you can't just hit it with one therapy. You really have to be selective and thoughtful about the mutations that are present, the functional characteristics, the age of the patient. So there might be ways for us to personalize therapy, and this will be an initial look or a pilot test to see if this particular assay, it's called dynamic BH3 profiling, can really help us to select a therapy for a patient. So how can physicians come up with bespoke therapies? How can they know precisely what drug or what combo of drugs will work in a disease that comes in so many shapes and sizes?
One potential solution is called dynamic BH3 profiling. It's something Tony Latai has been working on for years. Dynamic BH3 profiling is a snapshot taken in real time that shows how close a cancer cell is to self-destruction. The technique was developed in Tony Latai's lab. Working in vitro, Latai applies protein fragments called peptides to the mitochondria in cancer cells. The peptides are close cousins to BH3 mimetics. That's the active ingredient in venetoclax. If these peptides cause the poison sac to spill its guts, that means the cell was already close to the cell death cliff. Latai does the same experiments combining the peptides with other drugs. When the drug's on board, does it make the mitochondria more sensitive to our peptides that we're putting on there? And if the answer is yes, that means that drug moved the cell closer to the cliff's edge. And the reason why this matters, and this has been a matter of 10 years of work here in the lab, the reason why that matters is it turns out that is an excellent predictor of that drug being an effective drug in vivo, in real life. And that's the idea, a targeted treatment for cancer, individual drugs or cocktails mixed for individual patients. Meanwhile, the research trials and treatment continue. Jacqueline Garcia is busy with a new trial with a combination therapy for myelodysplastic syndrome, a blood cancer common in older adults. She says the preliminary results are promising. Matthew Davids is taking a close look at the way some CLL cells develop resistance to venetoclax and to other BCL2 inhibitors. How they switch their addiction from BCL2 proteins and ramp up production of other anti-death proteins that also keep the tumor cell alive. You can find when you take samples from patients later on when they've been on venetoclax for a while, they don't depend so much on BCL2 anymore. They've started to rewire their cells to depend on other proteins like MCL1 and BCLXL. And so we're very interested in my lab now in trying to find ways in CLL to actually rewire the cells back to being BCL2 dependent to resensitize them to venetoclax treatment. The story of venetoclax is a story of momentum. The motion begins almost 40 years ago with Stanley Korsmeyer and his work in apoptosis. And the science continues to surge forward today, with new chapters being written by physicians like Matthew Davids and Jacqueline Garcia. And as different as the plot and characters might be, every new chapter still echoes the first chapter. And, says Tony Latai, each one echoes the person who penned that first chapter. Stan Korsmeyer. Just by being a decent guy who is really good at science, he basically created and influenced an entire field and still influenced people. I mean, I still to this day, and I think you could talk to other trainees of his who would say the same thing. When I'm confronted with a question with how to run my lab or what to do in a particular circumstance, I often just first ask myself, okay, what would Stan do? Stan Korsmeyer died in 2005 of lung cancer at the age of 54. That's three years younger than Tony Latai is today. Which is a very sobering thought because, you know, I always saw him as like such a role model and such a senior figure. And to be older than him right now is very ironic. And I have to I was just thinking about this earlier today, which is, I think, like a lot of his trainees, I often wish that, I wish I could just have five minutes to tell Stan what I'm doing, and what's going on in this field that he founded, because I'm sure he would love it. 
next time. We tested and found no activity whatsoever. No toxicity, no activity, and we thought we had everything wrong. We learned how a tragedy in medicine turned into triumph. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org stories and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere.